Welcome to the Vince in the Bay podcast, special RSA 2017 edition. Over the past year, thousands upon thousands upon millions upon billions upon bazillions of security incidents have kept the cybersecurity industry quite busy. So there was plenty of fodder for industry pros to discuss and share as the InfoSec community converged on San Francisco last month for the annual RSA Security Conference. RSA has more of a trade show feel to it compared to other security conferences. So I've learned over the years that it's best to approach the conference as an opportunity to meet and network with industry experts. So this year, I try to spend a little less time attending the talks and more time meeting uh, with the players in the industry uh, who are really there to make deals and form partnerships. However, I did happen to catch several enlightening talks and panel discussions some of which featured the likes of ex-CIA operative Valerie Plame, security guru Bruce Schneier, security researcher extraordinaire Rob Graham, who you'll hear from in this podcast. I got to interview him. And I also caught a talk by people security expert Masha Sadova. If you're curious, you can go to the RSA website and they have most of these talks posted on video some of them weren't recorded but you can still look at their slides and rob graham's presentation on the mirai botnet is available in audio format along with the slides on my website my blog vincentdebay.com but don't check it out now stay here listen to the podcast and then check it out there were also a few entertaining keynote speeches and I caught two of them. One was astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse, deGrasse, deGrasse Tyson. I don't know how, however you say that. That, that dude, he was, he was actually really funny. And also late night host Seth Myers. Throughout the week, I was lucky to catch up with a, you know, a bunch of different industry pros representing some of the top tier firms in the cybersecurity sector and uh, was lucky to have them share their take on the challenges and trends facing cybersecurity firms, their clients, and end users. This episode will feature interviews with the aforementioned Rob Graham, security researcher at Errata Security, and my first repeat guest on this podcast. Also, Donald Meyer from Checkpoint Software Technologies, Dario Forte, founder and CEO of DF Labs and International Man of Mystery. I got to speak with three people from Anapsis. Sebastian Bortnick, Alex Horan, and Selena Proctor joined me from Anapsis. I also caught up with security researcher and Twitter friend Scott Bollinger. It's always cool to meet up with some of these people you talk to on, uh, on the internet in real life. I also caught up with Mr. Jeffrey Carr, a security consultant at 20K League, and he was my second guest to make a repeat appearance on the podcast. But first, Dave Lewis, 
global security advocate for Akamai Technologies. I'm here at RSA, and I'm with Dave Lewis, global security advocate for Akamai Technologies, founder of Liquid Matrix, co-host of the Liquid Matrix podcast. He has written on cybersecurity for several publications, including CSO Online and Forbes. He's also an extremely handsome man with a, a very, very well manicured beard and a nice head of hair, which I am envious of. Dave, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Dave, tell me a little bit about Akamai and uh, what your role is as global security advocate. What does that entail exactly? My role at Akamai is um, basically a table flipper. So and when I say that is I'm not marketing, I'm not sales, I'm not technical as a dedicated role, but I am a little bit of everything. So I do talks at conferences. I do uh, talk with customers like this week. I'm having a lot of customer meetings. Basically not to say here, look at this product, look at this product, look at this product. I want to know what it is they're trying to solve. What are the interesting aspects of their you know, daily life that they have to deal with? Because... I did that job for 20 years before I ever came to Akamai. I was a defender. So I have been through so much pain and suffering over those 20 years that I know I can relate to a lot of these customers and say, okay, this is how I navigated through it. Um, hopefully it can help them so that we can say, okay, well, this is where we can help you or this is not going to work for you because of X. Because in a service-based industry such as ours, we have to make sure that if we have a customer on board that we're prolonging that such as it becomes a lifetime commitment. Speaking of services, what are the services that you offer exactly? So for Akamai, we, uh, you know, born and bred as a CDN, uh, content delivery network. And that was our bread and butter when we started out um, almost two decades ago now. But we do that as well as we do security offerings and DNS. And there really is a case to be made that if you have an internet-facing site and you are worried about any sort of attack, any sort of resilience issues or time-to-market issues, we are so large that we can provide that level of resilience for a customer. So if they have uh, DNS issues like we saw with um, the company who I can't remember at the moment uh, back in the fall where they went down when they came under a Mirai-based botnet attack, that was not so much the the client or the vendor that went down that was the issue, so much as customers were not doing multiple DNS entries. So they didn't have a secondary tertiary DNS provider, in which case if they had that or even if they had their own DNS on site, they would have been able to actually uh, write out that attack. With, the, with our platform, the DNS is such that we can write out those sort of attacks as well as provide that resilience and speed. So on the content delivery side, if you have a site and you're trying to do uh, any sort of online retail, we speed up the site. Being a typical user, my wife is a perfect example. If she goes to shop on, online and the site is too slow, she will be off that site in a blink of an eye and off to the you know, whoever the newest and closest competitor is. She's a perfect test case example of you know the end user. And if the end user isn't happy because your site is too slow, you're at the door. So that's where you can build a business case to use a platform such as ours. It's kind of hard to find sites that load fast these days. It seems like every site is just overloaded with scripts running and trackers and third-party cookie, whatever you want to call it, WashingtonPost.com, 97 trackers. I remember when we were, you know, we had dial up and then we switched to broadband or, or DSL and everybody's listening. Wow, the internet's fast now. And it didn't take long for the content 
and the advertisers to fill up all that bandwidth. And now people are talking about fiber and they're going to do the same thing with that, I'm sure. There is so much data, so much analytics that has to be pulled out for the end company so they can know how to do a better job. So I understand why they have these things. As an end user, yeah, it's just like, wow. What, and if you're really that concerned about things like that, you use Tor or something to that effect. Any site like that is commoditized. They want to know who you are, what you had for lunch, what, all these sort of things because it helps them target you as a customer to provide a better experience. So I get that. But as an end user, yeah, I do use Tor a fair bit. Akamai came to my attention last year because I follow uh, Krebs on security. And um, he detailed this DDoS attack twice as big as any DDoS in the history of mankind. And Akamai was the service that he used. And Akamai was able to mitigate this attack. How were you able to do that? And I noticed you you dropped him as a client afterwards. I mean, it, it seemed amicable, and he understood. Explain that whole situation and, and your take on it. So that was, at up until that point, that was the biggest attack anybody had seen. It was absolutely massive. And unfortunately, it did not play out well in the wider community when they saw that he had been removed from the platform. And I mean, I think the world of Brian and... He does a great job. The thing was that he had been on our platform for four years at that point, and it was, um, it was a situation that had unfortunately run its course. And I was, I'm very happy that he was able to get onto another platform and get his site all taken care of because he does a great service overall. It just after a while, there was just you know, it, it was it had run its course. Um, but yeah, so that was the first big Mirai uh, instance that we saw. And since then, the attacker who wrote, and I say that very specifically as opposed to a hacker because I, I, I consider myself and other people in the security community hackers. So attackers demonstrating criminal intent. So with the attackers that released um, the code, they open sourced the code for the Mirai botnet. So you're seeing different iterations of it popping up now. The really funny thing is that wasn't the only player back in the fall. That was the really big one that we saw. It was also participating in the attack that took out uh, the DNS provider in the States whose name is escaping me at the moment. That was it. It was DIN, yes. So in addition to that, we also saw a botnet that was quite a few years old um, called Spike. It returned, and it was coming through at you know 523 gigabits of attack traffic in, I think it was October 16th. Um, so it was just amazing to see this old botnet that was dusted off and boom, it was back in play again. So the really interesting thing is a lot of that traffic, actually the vast majority of that traffic from the Mirai botnet was raw traffic. It was not reflected. So the potential for that to be much worse in the future is there. And I don't want it to be fear and certainty. Don't so much as planning. I want to make sure that people are taking the steps to protect themselves because that was no slouch when it comes to attacks. And it really caused, you know, a lot of heartache for people that came under fire from it that weren't properly protected. I recall around that time, right after that, there were variants that started popping up almost daily for a while. Uh, for example, I think there was one that took down the entire internet of Liberia. And from what I understand is a lot of these internet of thing botnets have, or at least uh, one, one in particular, preyed upon these security cameras and DVRs that were IP-based that were manufactured in China with um, apparently no way to interface with it and change u default username and passwords. Is that right? 
So this is one of the frustrations I have with IoT devices, um, especially consumer-grade ones. A lot of times there is hard-coded usernames and passwords, and this is, is not a unique thing to IoT. It's just there's a lot more of them. And you know, to the credit of the company who put out those DVRs that were affected, they uh, issued a recall and started fixing those ASAP. So they jumped on the problem very quickly. So you know, kudos to them for that. But the thing is, it really shouldn't have ever gotten to that point. Because programmatically, it is not a hard thing for you to do. When you're setting up the box, it pops up and says, okay, here's your default credentials, change it on first login. So there really is no good reason why that isn't implemented. I don't know if it's a time-to-market issue where the companies are trying to get the box out the door and bypassing security. When we see security issues that we have solved in the past in other industry verticals or globally, it really is frustrating to see these things returning. Like we're seeing IoT devices that are susceptible to Heartbleed, and Heartbleed is a patched fix problem. But the problem is some of these uh, manufacturers are using deprecated libraries. All right, you just pretty much squashed my um, conspiracy theory that China developed all these purposely so that they could be harvested into a, a, a monster botnet. Damn it. Um, Dave, if people want to stalk you on Twitter, where should they go? My Twitter handle is at Gattaca, G-A-T-T-A-C-A, and I apologize in advance. Gattaca, like the sci-fi movie with Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman? Well, the original handle that I have I can no longer use for reasons, and so I switched it to Gattaca because I have imposter syndrome, and that movie was all about it. So I went, perfect. That's Gattaca, G-A-T-T-A-C-A, on Twitter. Dave Lewis from Akamai Technologies. Thanks again, Dave. Thank you very much. I'm now joined by Rob Graham. Rob is the CEO of Arata Security, and he has a blog, which is blog.aratasec.com. And Rob is here to do a presentation on Mirai and the Internet of Things botnet analysis. Thank you for joining me, Rob. Glad to be here. We've talked before. You're, I think you're my, my first repeat guest on a podcast. Oh, no. So for those who might not be familiar with you and your work, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got into information security. Back in the day in the dot-com era, I started my own company called um, Network Ice. We had a product called Black Ice. It was a popular personal firewall. Uh, another part of the product line was the first intrusion prevention system, the first IPS. And I sold that out to ISS, which was got by IBM. So now it's a product sold by IBM. Then just some other stuff, like um, in 2007, I did sidejacking, which was, um, so I came up with this technique and some code, and that was um, then rolled into a product, to a tool called FireSheep that a lot of people use. It was popular for apparently for hacking into celebrity accounts. And then uh, recently I've been doing MassScan, scanning the whole internet, looking for stuff. Um, so I wrote this tool called MassScan that can scan the entire internet in a few minutes. Scanning the internet for just open ports and stuff and websites, or what? Or can do you give it parameters? How does that work? Yeah, it's just a port scanner, just like Nmap or something. But it it uses a technique called asynchronous scanning, which means that it uh, Nmap sort of um, tracks every connection it makes, uh, waiting for a response. And that takes a lot of overhead. MassScan just spews out packets as fast as it can, as fast as the underlying hardware will allow, and then waits for responses to come back, and therefore can do it a lot faster. So it's, it's more limited than Nmap. You can't do uh, advanced scripting. 
but it will establish a TCP connection and then grab like banner results back and stuff like that. Like you know, it'll do HTTP requests to get like web pages back and that sort of thing. So your talk at this RSA is uh, focused on the Internet of Things botnets. What are they? How are they different than a traditional botnet? When you look out in the environment, no one's actually explained that. How are IoT devices different? If you think about like your toaster as the, the model everyone has of a totally gratuitous thing you'd have on the Internet, um, what, what is its what we call a threat model? You don't sit on the toaster and press something that will then go download a virus and infect the toaster like you do on your laptop. You don't get emails in your toaster, presumably. You don't click on something and open a PDF on your toaster. So the threat model doesn't look like your standard laptop. And neither does it look like the standard server. So the other threat models we have in the world of where infections come from is, is things like open web servers on the Internet that get hacked. But your toaster is not going to be on the Internet. It's going to be in your home behind your personal firewall. Everyone's got a home firewall, whether they know it or not, which means there's no incoming connections to your, your toaster. I can't scan the Internet with my mask scan, for example, and find toasters in general. Most toasters will, will be uh, unreachable. So from the traditional threat model, the, the two main things that we think of is hacking on the Internet that creates botnets, which is either hacking into services or um, hacking yourself by, you know, downloading and installing a virus because you clicked on the email link, these don't happen with toasters. So uh, they're much safer. So this, this wave of IoT, you know, the IoT apocalypse as they all get hacked won't happen as, as people fear. Now, with cameras, though, that was a bit different because there's a problem with cameras, uh, surveillance cameras. Um, I want to be able to access my surveillance camera from my phone. Well, all phones are behind uh, NATs, network address translators, uh, carrier NATs. So they can go out to the Internet, but they can't get incoming connections. Likewise, your IoT device is behind a NAT, which allows only outbound connections. So if two devices only allow outbound connections, they can't talk to each other. And so therefore, uh, vendors do things to try to open up their cameras to open to the Internet. That's the suggested way of, 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 of using these cameras so I can access them and then just download video from my phone or from other, other sources. In addition, a lot of cameras are just on their own dedicated connection. They're in a warehouse somewhere. There's only one camera on one connection, and there's no reason to have a, a separate device uh, for the Internet. You just hook it directly to the ISP. So there's lots of reasons why these cameras are on the Internet, unlike most IoT devices. And so that's where this, this botnet, this Mirai botnet, or Mirai, and don't, I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah, I've just been going with Mirai, but uh, what do I know? It's probably a reference to, like, a anime character or something. Oh, yeah, it, it definitely is. Brian Krebs did a great job tracking down the author and stuff, and it definitely is. The ports are open to the Internet, like, like the traditional server, which means I can scan for them all and find them all with, like, mass scan and stuff. Uh, in particular, there's an issue with cameras. So how do you reset? If you forget the password on a camera, how do you reset everything back to the to factory defaults? Well, you don't, or you have a backdoor. And that's where these this whole botnet came from, was that all these cameras have a backdoor in them, essentially, that can be used to reset the camera back to the, the factory defaults. Uh, especially uh, most of them use Telnet. Telnet is this old protocol for logging on to a remote server, to access the raw Unix accounts. 
Telnet exists with a backdoor password for the well-known account that can be used to reset the device or to run software or botnet software. The interesting thing is that the cameras, the Mirai botnet, has all these interesting features that you don't have with, with IoT devices. They're their own separate world of their own special concerns. Why are they open? Why do they have back doors? It's not because of laziness, like there's a bug that was left behind accidentally. All this stuff is actually there for a reason. And it was DVRs too, right? Yeah, cameras and DVRs. And they were all specific makes and models, I believe, from the same manufacturer in China. There's like, I don't know how many manufacturers. There's a a ton of them. And it's really hard to find out the exact number of manufacturers because what happens is is you have a vendor of the chip has a reference design. Uh, And then you have multiple manufacturers who just take their reference design, nearly the same hardware, that put their own Linux distribution on it. And But those are just the raw manufacturers. They didn't sell it to other companies who put their brand name on it. But you can get a lot of these devices. You can go on uh, line to Amazon.com, and you'll get these devices, and they have no brand name associated with it. They're from some fly-by-night uh, marketplace that are associated with Amazon. Amazon uh, takes the order, and they fulfill the order by sending it to the camera from China. And you get this device, and there's no manufacturer associated with the device. They just sort of exist out of, I don't know, out of, out of the ether. They just arrive on your doorstep, and there they are. There's, a, I don't know, five or ten raw manufacturers underneath this. They have the same problems. I was trying to sell Dave Lewis on this. Since all these um, manufacturers are in China, where they build everything fast and cheap, and as far as I could go back, it seems like, at least in Mariah's case, it's a variation of a variation of a variation of a variation of a script that was originally written by someone in in China. No? Damn it. I was convinced at first, like, okay, all these cameras and things are all made in China. Maybe China was like, hey, we'll just throw all these these, uh, Internet of Things devices out there that are vulnerable, and we've got, like, a playground for a botnet. No? No. For one thing is, is that all these different cameras, they're vulnerable in slightly different ways. If, if they were trying to actually create the same vulnerability, they would look more common with each other. But they're all very different from each other, actually. And actually, there's, there's more cameras out there that are vulnerable that aren't being exploited by the, by the botnet. So the first camera I bought in order to try this out, to try to get infected, it didn't get infected because it, the, it had a backdoor password, but one unique to that camera that was not in as part of the Mirai botnet, one that the botnet authors didn't know about. But Brian Krebs has done a great job of actually tracking down who the authors are. It's some guy who's just involved in computer games, setting up a Minecraft server, DDoSing Minecraft servers, selling a service to protect Minecraft servers from DDoS and that sort of thing. And that's where the the creation of this. And it's more Eastern Europe derived than it is China derived. After Mirai came out, it seemed like there was maybe a month period ish where a lot of variants on this botnet were taking down you know dns servers i think it was din was 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 the one and it took down like half the internet everybody was freak i was freaking out because twitter went down i didn't know what to do then all of a sudden it just dropped off and it seems like it hasn't i haven't really heard much about it since is this just because the manufacturers have done the recalls and they put out the word that you need to protect these devices or what is mitigating these attacks or people just what is your reasoning 
for the drop off or seemingly the the big drop off from last year when there was that period where it seemed like every day there was a new big botnet that was taking something down? Well, actually, the the botnets haven't gone away. But one problem with these botnets is that IoT devices they have um, they boot into RAM, so any changes any changes to the device are wiped out when they when they get restarted, which means you infect them and then the infection is blown away when the device gets powered off and powered on again. Now that this is, this technique of going after these cameras has become so famous, other people are trying to, to infect the devices with their own botnet as well. Either take the, the Mirai uh, botnet code was published, they can just use that, or they can use their own code. It, writing this code is, is a fairly simple job. It's not complex code. There's a competition of trying to, do, to grab all the devices as they're rebooted to get them into your own botnet away from someone else's botnet. And so we've seen a fragmentation. So the botnets, we had one large botnet, essentially, that was very, very big. Now we have many competing botnets that are smaller, not controlled by the same people. So their capability of doing large-scale attacks has, has reduced somewhat. There's still some big ones out there that can do large attacks, but they're smaller now. The other issue is, is that you look at uh, with DynDNS, what happened with them is you look at all the their major vendors like Twitter, they have diversified. Before, they relied exclusively on Dyn to do their DNS service, which means if Dyn went down, Twitter went down. Now they're using Amazon's uh, service as well as Dyn's or their own service as well as Dyn's. So now in order to, to DDoS, the root domain name services, it's much harder now than it used to be. You had a problem appear on the Internet, people changed their behavior. Other things have changed, too. You look at Twitter, for example. Twitter had their timeout on their records was three minutes before, which means that if their DNS servers go down, three minutes later, their records disappear from your cache because your, your web browser says, hey, I'll hold on to a record for that, that time to live. And after three minutes, I'll throw it away and ask for it again. That's how Twitter used to work. And now it's 30 minutes so that if I lose a record, it, it lasts longer. And that's what a lot of the people have done is they've, they've increased their TTL, increased the amount of time that it, it, the records are cached before things go down. So now if there's a hiccup, you probably, you're probably much less likely to notice. The overall state of the cybersecurity industry as it is now, in addition to this Internet of Things, uh, what are other major threats that we're looking at going forward now? Everyone wants to talk about the new threats going forward, but we still haven't solved the old threats going looking backwards. The threats from 15 years ago were SQL injection on your web server and phishing attacks to you or your employees or something. And those are still the top threats we have today. Instead of looking forward to the new threats we might have in the future, we need to, to actually settle down and, and deal with the threats that we have today. Your company should have a policy like, you know, when employees click on email links... That should be fine. The employees should be doing that because you should have a robust infrastructure such that that, that, that will not endanger you. Employees should, for example, be, um, be quarantined from the rest of the network, which means that when their access to the servers is, is much the same from inside their network as from the outside. Or they need to have two-factor authentication so that when they log on with Twitter and use the same password and give it to a hacker, it's not the same uh, password as their main corporate account. And so that hackers can't just reuse that password in order to, to break into the network. Uh, my point is, is that we have these old threats 
that are actually solvable. We know how to solve SQL injection, for example. It's an easy thing to solve technically, uh, but organizationally, it's still around because it's impossible to solve organizationally. And we need to actually do work to solve that. Cool. We're here at RSA 2017. What's your impression so far? I know you just got here, but anything in particular you're excited about this year at the conference? No, I'm a techie. So I don't really want to look at any of the vendor products. Though it is interesting how every year it erodes a little bit more from things that are driven by technology and what techies do versus things that are flashy. It's more and more a trade show like you get at CES. And every year, RSA gets prettier. Rob Graham of Arata Security. To reach you on Twitter, it's Arata Rob, right? Right. Arata Rob on Twitter, E-R-R-A-T-A Rob, and then blog.arataSec.com. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. Here at RSA 2017, now joined by Checkpoint Head of Product Marketing, Donald Meyer. Welcome, Donald. Thanks for having me. Could you give me a quick little background on Checkpoint? Checkpoint's been around for more than 20 years. Uh, we pioneered the stateful inspection engine. What, what the heck does that mean? Uh, basically, we looked at uh, how interconnectivity or how different networks could be connected together to be able to share information. But as soon as you did that, um, you started to see traffic patterns or things that you didn't want shared leaving or coming uh, uh, various entities. So what our founder did was developed a buffer, a, a tool called a firewall, which allows you to create a, uh, an environment in between different networks that allows you to police the traffic coming in and out, establish policies or rules, if you will, for how different systems can then communicate effectively. Um, from those humble beginnings, we started a, our first commercial solution around a stateful inspection engine, which became known as a firewall. So if you think about it, in your vehicle, a firewall protects you, the driver and the passengers, from the heat of the engine and you know from, from the, the explosions in the controlled environment that is the engine. It protects the passengers and you know provides that nice little buffer between the areas. In the same way a network firewall does the same thing for networks. It provides a nice little buffer between different entities or different zones to keep data networks and, and, and assets secure. Um, you mentioned your, the, the founder. Who is the founder? The founder of our company is a gentleman named Gil Schwed. He's been a pioneer in this space. Like I said, developed the first commercially available uh, stateful inspection engine, which we call the firewall, uh, and the first commercially available product called our Firewall One product. Wait, so the actual term firewall actual firewalls this guy this is the guy that invented firewalls this is the guy that invented firewalls as we understand them today correct wow man i lucked out with this interview at, at what point did checkpoint become a publicly traded uh, company it was in the late 90s um and we've been publicly traded on the nasdaq ever since that's got to be one of the first security firms that ever went public i would imagine right yeah, we had a very successful IPO, um, and as a result, uh, kind of set the trend, if you will, in the rest of the industry with respect to how security companies can come to, uh, to market as well as how they can become valuated and, and become successful in the markets. So can you give me a quick little primer on all the different products and services, just an overview of the products and services that uh, Checkpoint offers and what the target audience is? 
Checkpoint's mission, our, our vision for uh, our existence, is to really make the Internet secure. Uh, the entire shadow uh, market, the, the, the black web, if you will, huge, huge, huge. It mirrors uh, and, and mimics the Internet uh, exactly in, sh- in scope and size and shape. Um, it's, it's incredible how large and how effective it is. But more importantly, it's a money-making machine. If you can tap into it appropriately, you can make a lot of money. As a result of that, it becomes very, very organized, uh, very well funded, funded by now nation states, um, terror organizations even are, are, are using this as a tool to knock out their competitors, knock out uh, organizations they don't agree with, to hold, again, data hostage and, and try and make some money out of the deal. So you know, our mission is to really look at a way that we can infuse technology in such a way that it, it provides a safe experience for businesses to be able to utilize the Internet and all the great things that the Internet can bring. In going through the Checkpoint Cybersecurity Research Survey, I came across a new term that I, I kind of like, is this uh, BYOD, bring your own device. The president is walking around with an unsecure phone. In the corporate world or business world, you have employees who are accessing information remotely, whether it's uh, through their phone, and it's a lot of times it's not necessarily a employer provided device so sometimes they're they're pulling up stuff on their on their own devices what are you doing towards addressing these BYOD issues um Fortunately, from my background, I've, I come also from Wi-Fi and mobility, and, and we've been diligently trying to build an infrastructure to allow BYOD to permeate itself through the enterprise far more effectively. Um, but take a step back and take a look at really what we're enabling here. Um, here we have a consumer-grade device, a smartphone. It's not a device that's built for the enterprise. Um, contrast that with our laptops, who our IT departments will issue to us. Well, they issue a device that, A, they understand, B, they've installed everything on, and C, they've locked down very, very carefully because they know who's going to be using it, they know what it's going to be used for, and they know what access level of access it should have uh, with respect to the different resources in the organization. With a BYOD device, you don't really know that. Um, you know kind of who it's, it's associated to, but you don't know what they're going to be doing with it. Um, likewise, you don't know what they're going to install on it. You don't know what they're going to be accessing or from where. Um, and essentially, now, my network went from just being my four walls to being Starbucks or being the airport or being you know a hotel somewhere. Um, and how I expose now the the challenges of, of managing my data and managing the integrity of my data to all these different advice, uh, environments is, is a cause for concern. That's why when we ran our survey, one of the top things that organizations are struggling with and, and really concerned about is data leakage from these devices uh, because these are not IT-issued devices. These are not devices that we lock down just like we do our, our laptops. And again, they're being used in places that we typically did not have an office environment in. So, yeah, BYOD really stands for bring your own device, but I like to refer to it as bring your own disaster in some respects because some people really aren't thinking about the security ramifications of allowing a consumer-grade device that's fully unvetted, that can install anything, can go anywhere, can be left anywhere. Uh, what does that mean in terms of being able to allow it access to different um, network resources and different, different data? 
Um, we carve out a, a, a secure part of the device itself where we will then allow only corporate data to exist, and it will not commingle with anything else. If the device is lost or stolen, that portion of the device is fully encrypted and can only be unlocked if an authorized user can connect it to an authorized site. Case in point, there was a flashlight application on an Android device. Uh, that's a useful utility. Well, it was really designed so once you used it to look around to see what other corporate applications were installed on the device and start siphoning data out to them and send it out to some cloud provider somewhere so someone could get access to your corporate data. Unbeknownst to the user, they wouldn't even think about it because they see the application turn on. It's doing what it's supposed to do. I don't see anything that's going on in the background, so I have no idea that this is a problem. But we have a, an agent that runs on the device that looks for those types of things. Because let's face it, this is a backdoor now. These, these mobile devices are backdoors into our corporate networks. The threat landscape out there is just increasingly becoming much, much more uh, aggressive, more difficult to, to get a handle on. Thank you so much, Donald. Can I call you Don? Please. All right, Don. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Don from Checkpoint Software Technologies. Uh, Don, if anyone listening would like to follow up on Checkpoint and learn more about Checkpoint and their services? Pretty easy to find. www.checkpoint.com. They'll get you where you need to go. And if I want to troll you on Twitter, what's the Twitter handle? <laughs> to fly for Wi-Fi. Excellent. Donald, I appreciate you uh, speaking with me today and enjoy the rest of RSA 2017. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. And now I have the distinct pleasure of meeting with the founder and CEO of DF Labs, Dario Forte, joining me. Welcome, Dario. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Buongiorno. Naturalmente. Buongiorno a tutti. Come stai? Molto bene, grazie. That's, that's the extent of my Italian. Come si dice, I haven't had enough coffee yet in Italiano. Uh, devo ancora prendere il caffè. Yeah. <laughs> Dario, could you just tell me a little bit about your background and uh, how DF Labs came to be. So I'm, I'm a former police officer and I spent over 14 years in, uh, uh, in the Italian Financial Police working on organized crime and drug enforcement. And the uh, last five years of my career, I've been spending my time in creating and uh, you know, managing the cyber crime squad in the north of, of Italy. And during that time, I've been working also with many U.S. agencies, including NASA and DHS. We made very good investigation together. It was 2000, year 2000. And uh, by the way, at that time, we closed a very important investigation with the help of NASA and DHS in my part of the world in an operation that uh, used to be called uh, Reservoir Dogs, where we arrested 14 security consultants responsible to steal very important classified files. And uh, that also gave me the possibility to keynote at Black Hat that year. So then I uh, left the agencies and I moved into private sector, passing through academia. I spent uh, almost uh, 10 years uh, teaching at uh, Milano State University. And my specialization uh, was uh, at that time uh, computer forensics and incident response. It was easy for me then to create a company that at that time uh, was still called DF Labs. And uh, we started in that way as a pure services on incident response and computer investigation. And then in 2010, we intercepted one of the main pain of the people that, of the customer that we've been working with, that basically they were complaining about the fact that they were not able to have a single pane of glass where incidents should uh, be you know managed and also investigation should be managed. At that time, it was mostly on the case management side. 
So at that time, we created the version one of the platform that now is in version four, and it's called Inkman. That stands from Incident Manager. And at that time, we were creating that application with the, with the main purpose of having some structured uh, case management able to uh, support the tracking of incident. But we evolved very quickly into automation. And uh, uh, in, 2000, uh, in 2013, we launched our first uh, process-based orchestration and automation version of the tool. That at that time we, uh, was called Inkman NG, next gen. And uh, please. Uh, just to clarify, you, that's Inkman, like I-N-C-M-A-N. That's the name of the product? That's correct. What what, came, what was the idea for that for that name? Oh, we we are pretty lucky with names. Uh, um, so the choice of the name usually come out after a dinner, and one day we were at dinner and uh, basically, <laughs> it's a, that's a joke in Italian. And basically, the, why, one of my people were using a pen and the pen exploded. We don't know why. And uh, there was a joke in Italian. So prendilo con le mani, prendilo con le mani. So ink man, and then it came out. Ink man could also result in incident management. So that's the way it was. We understand that there are people that spend thousands of money on marketing studies and psycho study on names of product. Uh, we just use the most strategical Italian approach. We just take it easy. So throughout the the story of the company, we came into uh, 2015, and we've been uh, interviewing many. Uh, 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 CISOs that were basically also complaining about the fact that uh, uh, they needed something more sophisticated and uh, they wanted us to uh, increase our machine-to-machine ability to uh, automate uh, uh, also machine actions. So we created the new version of, uh, of Inkman uh, and uh, then we put uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning on top of it We've been testing it for a while, and we uh, launched uh, uh, three weeks ago. And now it is Inkman 4.0. And the interesting thing is that uh, the company is Italian, of course, but the majority of our customers are in the U.S. By May 2016, we also we received uh, our first round of funding from uh, a VC called Evolution Equity, uh, which is one of the investors of uh, Carbon Black, for example, on Apsis, Security Scorecard, OpenDNS before being sold to Cisco and so on. It was the largest VC, American VC money into a European company in, uh, in, in the year. And uh, the relationship is very good. And uh, we also had the possibility to bring people on board uh, in order to create, a, I think, a very, very good team. Uh, and uh, now the people, are, we have 45 people, almost 45 people between Milano, London, Boston, Skopje and Abu Dhabi. So as far as the, the company goes, is it, it's a privately held company at the moment, right? Um, it seems like there's been a big wave of cybersecurity firms that are going public and are publicly traded. It's, the, it's at the point now where there's an ETF that indexes all of them, which is called Hack, which I love to follow. I'd like to get your ideas on on that model and also DF Labs thinking about going public eventually or is your model to stay private our sector is security automation and orchestration uh, there are uh, only 12 vendors in uh, at the moment and uh, there is a huge hype on uh, this sector uh, customers are looking at uh, at it very actively uh, buyers are looking at it very actively investors are looking at it the same way 
the majority of the bankers that I'm speaking with, uh, they think that uh, there could be some option to get public, but at the same time, there will be probably some consolidation of the market in the next 36 months. Bankers' opinion is that uh, revenue are important, but market traction is even more important. And most of all, the technology and the team is more important, even more of the revenue. So uh, they think uh, that uh, it doesn't matter where the company is based. Uh, the technology and the IP is the most important thing. Such companies usually could go public. I personally think that there is an, a lot of hype on a security company getting public. Many of security companies that uh, announced to go public aren't went public yet. That means that there are a lot of implications that probably doesn't make gate public convenient. And at the same time, PE, private equity firms, they are investing massive money to delist public listed security company and then create another ecosystem. So it's more complex that uh, the hype is actually trying to draw at the moment. I'm curious about um, what it's like to operate as a security vendor in Italy. What's, what's the climate like there? When people think about Italy, they just think about beautiful places, you know, great food and, uh, you know, and pizza and all these things. They actually think that, that we do chicken pizza. And I want to take this opportunity to say that we don't do chicken pizza. You can get arrested if you try to ask chicken pizza in my country. So this is a message that I would like to give to your people. This is, yes, only margarita. But getting back to serious thing, uh, there are a lot of very good data scientists and very good programmers uh, that are taking care of the security aspects. And there are three to four universities in the country that are very active in creating startups. And there is an increasing number of VCs that are looking at Italian companies for the simple reason that 5 million invested in Italy is like investing uh, 25 million here in the Bay Area because of costs of living, difficult to retain talents, uh, benefits and all these things. So in the next uh, eight to nine months, uh, Europe will become probably one of the major hub uh, for technology startups. And I will also add uh, another point that probably could be interesting, not only as a market, but also as a source, which is the UAE is exploding in terms of startups because the local government is investing a lot in getting people with great abilities that probably from countries that probably could be banned here in the US. So they just announced a couple of important openings for visas for uh, for scientists from com from uh, from countries that probably couldn't be uh, well accepted here in the US, and they are attracting a lot of custom a lot of uh, uh, you know talents, and uh, with very low taxes. So uh, I think that world is changing in information security, and we will assist to an increase of uh, out of the US startups in the next twenty four months. Uh, Eastern Europe. Back in the day, that was a hotbed for black hats, right? Like like the Estonia, the Baltics, Romania. Is it essentially recruiting those types? Uh, if you are in offensive security, there are still this lifestyle. So they go to this Eastern country and they try to get very bright minds with some issue. And they try to hire them in order to use them. Uh, but if you are in defensive security, as we are, and it is interesting, some people in the countries that you also mentioned are trying to take distance from people who define themselves hackers or black hat and so on. So they basically they tell potential employers, we don't do hacking, we don't do unauthorized intrusions and so on, we are mostly on the scientific side. And you can get uh, some very good talent, if you want to say so, in Romania, in Bulgaria, 
in some part of Ukraine. Also, Ukraine actually at the moment is not that easy to get in because of the situation there. But then there are also very interesting uh, data scientists in, for example, in Czech Republic, in uh, in Macedonia, in uh, in Serbia, in Estonia, as you say, then Latvia. So world is changing also on on that part of the world as well. We're here at RSA. 2017. It's day four now. How has your experience been at the conference so far? And, and what, what, what is it that's excited you the most? I try to, to wear my Italian hat. There are two zones at RSA. The north one, people with money, and the south one, which is composed by people with money and innovative companies. We assisted to an increase of uh, number of CISOs and mid-management uh, in big corporations going to the innovative side because what they think is that we can probably get very good innovation that is focused on solving problems rather than marketing hype. So uh, we have a booth here and we met very, and strangely, we met very good important CISOs, even from very big banks here in the US. I think that uh, if you take the right path, uh, you have a, a very focused target. There is no reason to invest a uh, hundred of thousand or more in it. Uh, you just get uh, the best of, uh, of RSA. And uh, I take with, uh, you know, I'm, I'm okay with the, the distinction in two zones. I don't know if they decided to do that on purpose, but this is the effect. And uh, there is also very good room to make partnership within companies. Uh, we don't, we didn't just get end users as a lead, but also probably ten to twelve, uh, uh, ten to twelve companies that wanted to integrate with our technology, which which is open because we are API based. And the interesting thing is that uh, their customers are very big as well. They are small customer, small companies in Dutch, in Spain, or in Turkey, but they have super big customers that invested in them because they understand that they can probably solve the problem quickly. So I think that uh, uh, as much you interpret our RSA for, uh, as an ad value conference, not just as a marketing platform, you can take advantage of it. There is a lot of, uh, lot of marketing hype on companies because there is so high competition that companies are investing more in marketing compared with the investment that they do in product. A lot of money is, got, is going into cybersecurity company. There is a lot of interest on the detection side. Antivirus are going to be replaced by the so-called new next-gen antiviruses. There are new vendors that are currently replacing the old-style antivirus vendors with new solutions based upon AI or you know, behavioral analysis and so on. The CM market is evolving uh, rapidly. There is also a very important uh, flow that is moving from detection to the response. So people understand that they will be hacked, but they want to be prepared to respond in order to reduce the reaction time as much as they can. So the trend will be, I think, in the next 36 months, more focused detection, but also additional focus on the response side, which is where we are at the moment. Thank you so much, Dario, for spending some time with me. It's It's been a pleasure to get to know you and uh, learn more about DF Labs. If uh, a listener is curious and they want to learn more about DF Labs, where can they go on the Internet to find more information? Uh, they can go on dflabs.com. We are on Twitter as uh, Twitter slash DF Labs and on LinkedIn as DF Labs. So if they go on dflabs.com, they can get all the information. Dario Forte, founder and CEO of DF Labs. Thank you, Dario. Thank you for having me. It's Vince in the Bay. I'm joined now by Sebastian Bortnik, head of research at Onopsis, and also Alex Horan, director of product management for Onopsis. 
I am 100% unfamiliar with Onopsis. Alex, let's start with you. Tell me a little bit about the company and its history and how you got involved. Absolutely. Uh, so our founder, uh, prior to founding Onapsis, was performing penetration tests. Uh, and one of his customers asked him to perform a penetration test for something that was front-ending an SAP system. He has a budget of five days, finished in three, and so the customer said, hey, can you have a look at the back end and, and tell me if there's anything going on there? And he found a couple of really low-hanging fruit-type vulnerabilities in the SAP system, and he looked around on full disclosure and other places, and, and no one had reported it, which kind of opened his eyes to, hey, this was two days' worth of work, and I found these, these fairly critical issues. You know, is no one paying attention to these systems? So long story short, he recognized a, a gap in the market, um, understood that SAP systems run the back end and the lifeblood of a lot of organizations, but because they're so critical and because they're so complex, organizations weren't looking at them from a security point of view. So fast forward to today, we have a, an, an enterprise platform that we deploy uh, uh, at our customers' locations that's monitoring and analyzing their SAP systems. You know, the classic stuff, are they missing security patches? Are they badly configured and exposed to risk? Are they out of compliance? Uh, but because people can't change these systems easily, uh, some organizations only have one maintenance window a year to make a change to an SAP system. It could also monitor the system, looking for signs of intrusion, signs of abuse, inside of attacks, etc., and alert uh, and respond accordingly to, uh, to those attacks. Sebastian, would you like to expand on that? Yeah, why not? Because uh, the research team is probably the heart of the company because the knowledge that we have regarding SAP and also Oracle uh, security vulnerabilities is... Sorry to interrupt you. What the hell is an SAP? S SAP is like one of the leaders, the leading providers for ERP and business critical application systems. So companies that have SAP software usually manage like financial staff, HR staff, stock staff. I mean, almost everything in your business can be managed by your ERP system. And SAP is like probably the, the, the leading provider in, in this field. Uh, and, and this is interesting. I mean, I, I've just joined Onapsis like eight months ago. It's quite interesting how a lot of companies have several protections for other less critical systems, but they are not protecting your most critical information. So this is like what Onapsis uh, founders initially brought to the market and what we are trying to transform. Like you need to put your efforts based on the how critical and how valuable is your information. And of course, we need to do a lot of knowledge sharing, let's say, with, with the community so they know about it and they know how to do it. In, when we talk about enterprises and specifically what we do, it's kind of different because it's much more new what we are doing. I mean, 10 years ago, nobody was talking about it. For me, it was like amazing coming from another, in, uh, another industry, like the antivirus industry, to realize that even companies that are supposed to have like the best pro information security teams can probably be attacked uh, through their SAP system. I was going to say uh, indoctrinate people in, in uh, required IT boot camps. Just lock them in a camp and train them on this stuff because most people have to learn the hard way. Yeah, I think this is the way we learn when we are, uh, let's say, adults. I mean, so the thing is that we need to put information security in like in the younger levels. I mean, we, we learn maths in the school, but we don't learn how to change a password. So, of course, this is going to happen. I don't know, in 20 years, 50 years, or whatever. The thing is that when we don't, when we don't learn this like in an early stage, we learn in the way you, you just mentioned, that is, after a bridge. Alex, would you like to expand on that? Yeah, I have a slightly different point of view. You, know, you look at uh, all the research, all the studies around smoking and how bad it is for you, and yet you, know, you walk outside of here and people are smoking. So human beings, we don't 
automatically do the right thing because it's the right thing, even with all the evidence presented to us. So I think there's a certain responsibility on vendors and providers of information security and just software in general to enforce some level of security on the user. Like, you know, a, a router that ships with a default password and then the expectation is that my mother will know to change that, I think is a, an unrealistic expectation. I think vendors have to take more responsibility for either really enforcing security and pushing security down on the end users. If we just expect everyone to automatically be secure, then you know, I think human history proves that we don't always make the smartest decisions, even when we have clear evidence about why the decision we're making is, is bad, if we can't see the, the consequences straight away in front of us. So that i think the camp is a good idea um, you know, negative reinforcement sometimes works so uh but i think if we try and expect the general community to just be secure because it's the best thing to do you know for some people it's that's not worth the time for them they haven't been breached therefore they never will be in their mindset so why spend that time so i think uh we need to start pushing it on them um yeah i i think education is is very key and i would really love to be the internet czar and just decree things like, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, JavaScript is now illegal. JavaScript illegal. You can only make a website with HTML and CSS. That's it. Done. It's over. You can't even click anywhere. Look, I'm on your website right now, and there's like white space, right? And I can click around there and, and, and go up and down. Some sites you go to, you can't click anywhere on the page or else you're going to something. Usually an ad, and that's straight up clickjacking. How does this get remedied? What would be a possible solution for a, a problem like that? You talked at the beginning, beginning of that about being the Internet Czar, which firstly sounds fantastic. But I think what we all as uh, <clears throat> information security professionals have the ability to be potentially is the Internet Czar within our organization. I think, unfortunately, no one, or maybe fortunately, no one controls the entire Internet. But within your organization, you can start enforcing standards, disabling JavaScript, forcing certain browsers, you know, not having IE6, as I've seen in some places, then trying to enforce a level of, okay, within our organization, things run at this level. It's standards, like what's going to be needed kind of across uh, across an industry or across a, a country, enforcing a minimum level of security and compliance to certain standards uh, to do it. And, you know, as a, as a security vendor, you know, we don't magically solve the problem. We highlight and we tell you what exactly the problem is and if you want if you can't if you can't fix it all these are the ones you should fix first but you still need someone who's willing to to spend the time to to fix it so we're we're helping people kind of narrow their focus because it is overwhelming you, i was talking to someone on the show floor uh, yesterday and i was kind of saying well i only have to know about my booth and the stuff we do this was a, a CISO of a large organization he has to know about every booth just to make sure he's got everything covered and he's thought of all the right things like it, it's really overwhelming so what we as the vendors can help people do is focus. But I think within each organization, InfoSec needs to kind of have a stronger role and be able to say, I don't care what you want to see on Facebook. Like This is a standard for our organization. We're here to, to perform functions for the business. And here's how we're going to run in order to remain secure. I'm not sure what you think, Sebastian. Sebastian? Yeah, and also from a, from a research perspective, I mean, one of the key things in, in information security is to anticipate to attackers. I mean, you need to protect things because be, before someone else at, attack it. So from our research lab, one of our key activities is to find bugs in this kind of solutions and to report it to vendors so they can solve it before an attacker discover it. So this is like, of course, our business is to protect our customers, but as a collateral effect, we are helping vendors to, to, to get better. Another reason why it'd be cool to outlaw JavaScript is that Facebook would cease to exist. 
they talk about an internet 911 i think if there's some way you could disable javascript globally across all browsers that would be the cyber 911 people would freak out where's facebook where's my facebook where did my facebook go so we're here at rsa Anapsis is here. You guys have a booth and you're dealing with, with other vendors and, and such. How's that process uh, been going for you so far this year? So this is, I think, my 11th RSA. And, and each year I'm just a little bit more overwhelmed by just how many other vendors there are here. I mean, we've gone from being on one hall to two halls and you know, it was just spilling over. And for a while, I, I, maybe I got a little bit cynical. It just seemed like too many vendors. Like, we're trying to solve the problem in too many different ways, and it must be really hard as a consumer to make a decision between you know, all these different shiny, uh, flashy things. But what I've really noticed this year is vendors working together. Like, you know, try, all right, I solve this part of the problem. You solve that part of the problem. We're not fighting over whose dashboard are people going to look at, but you know, how can we combine our data to provide an overall kind of view of like, here is the scope of the problem that people are having. So that's something that's uh, very... I've seen it really positive as vendors not naturally assuming the other vendors are the competition and we shouldn't be talking to them, but a lot more collaboration, a lot more cooperation. Sebastian? It was amazing. We we just have a, a CISO roundtable here at RSA, almost 40 CISOs of like huge companies. And it was like really interesting for me to see how they evolve and they have like a new understanding of their roles. And this is something that really changed in the last five or 10 years. Like information security is much more based on the business needs. I mean, it's not not only a technology thing, but also to understand the business, to understand where the company needs to do things. Um, I think this is also something interesting that is going to change like in the following years. Like, you don't need to do like everything. You need to understand what your business needs and do only these things. This might be a question for marketing. I don't know. Okay, so the overall landscape of the industry is now a lot of these big firms are gobbling up smaller firms. The bigger firms are going have gone public. It's really adapting to the, the finance culture that's already been in place. I always wonder, these investors, do they have any clue what they're investing in? There are investors out there who are just dollar signs. Like This is just a thing I'm investing in and I expect... You know, X amount of return. We're we're very fortunate with our investors that they they focus on security. They care about the companies. They don't, they only pick a, a few companies to invest in, and then they work with us to introduce us to uh, potential prospects and and to help us succeed. So, from that point of view, we have um, a great investment group who's invested in us and really provide guidance. As for the goal, that's that's above my pay grade, so <laughs> I don't have any insight into that. We also have in our little uh, death chamber here, Selena, who is from Anapsis's marketing team, and she's going to hopefully shed some light on the second half of my question. I, I think the beginning goal from our CEO uh, and co-founder and just the co-founders and the early folks that started the company was just to protect organizations, kind of crown jewels is kind of a cheesy word, but to protect the systems that have key financial, HR, logistics, shipping data. And so I think to this day, the entire company has the same mindset of being the leading company to do that exact thing. So the future is, is really exciting for us just based on how the industry is growing and in the trends that are coming. But for now, the goal is just simply to be the market leader in protecting people's business critical applications. Yes, yeah, Sebastian, you want to add? Yeah. Also being part of the team that works in our technology, I do think that both our customers and our investors 
uh, appreciate that we keep focusing on what we do. And for example, I don't know, we, we have integration with CM uh, platforms. So we are not trying to do what is already done. We are trying to do what nobody uh, did. So I think this is something that we are really focusing our research and development team to keep doing this, that we were the first one to talk about it. And I think all the community, not only our investors, but also our customers and our future customers are appreciating. You mentioned at the beginning, what is SAP? And that's not uncommon. Uh, well, I am familiar with it only because the San Jose Sharks hockey team, their arena is called the SAP Center. That's it. I know it through sports. See, the power of marketing. I mean, that's just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it's kind of, I think of it like skater where, hey, this stuff runs really sensitive stuff, so don't touch it. Don't look at it. And I think that's the biggest challenge that, uh, not so much that we're having, but just in general, is these SAP systems historically within an organization were, this is running, this is doing all our financial transactions, so nobody even look at it just in case it, it turns off type of thing. So getting people to start realizing the contradiction what they're saying, which is, hey, this is running all our critical financial transactions. Surely it's the first thing we should be looking at and making sure that no one else can do something malicious to it. So it's kind of navigating people through that switching of mindsets to you should look at it because it's so critical versus don't touch it because it's so critical. So that's, for me, that's the, the conversations I'm having on the show floor, especially with true information security professionals who have been challenged in, within their organization and told, don't look at those systems because they're, they're so critical to us. You know, now they're pushing back saying, you expect me to communicate the risks that we're, we're living with as a business, but you're not letting me look at the most important asset inside of our business. Um, what kind of swag do you guys have? We have really good hats, and they're already distressed, um, but I can tell you that they're very fashionable and they, they look really good you know, if you like things that look like they've been run over by a truck. Do you guys have pens? No more pens. Uh, oh, blinky glasses. Whoa. Between all the other vendors on the show floor, we lost all of our blinky glasses pretty early. Okay. Well, I really appreciate all of you for joining me. Thank you very much to Sebastian, Alex, and Selena from Anapsis. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Vince. RSA 2017. And now I'm joined by Scott Bollinger. He's a senior systems engineer at the Levitt Group. Scott, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Um, Scott, so um, you now are with Levitt Group working in the insurance industry. What are some of the threat models that you face you know, from the inside, uh, you know, we have the normal employee assets uh, that, w that we have to protect. Um, we've done some mitigating things uh, as far as our customers. Um, our customers will have um, their assets, social security numbers, PII, that kind of stuff in the insurance carrier itself. So we don't keep the PCI kind of stuff. We don't keep the, the HIPAA kind of uh, stuff. Though, although we are governed by it and you know, we, we we're very strict on our security, we don't uh, have a lot of databases lying around with that kind of information. Those are all up in the cloud under the insurance carriers, whether they be you know Blue Cross or whoever. Um, what sort of education do you have in place that um, gets the average employee gets them up to speed on just sort of the common practices of operational security in a corporate environment and outside of it. Now that we have these, uh, you know, everybody's got a device and they're sometimes using it for work and uh, for personal stuff. 
as far as education and security awareness, um, I guess the first attack that we, we, we made sure was the people that actually dealt with the PII information, anyone that would be under HIPAA or PCI if they were taking credit cards at the time. Um, and now we're just trying to basically get it you know the word out to all of our employees that you know it's not just here we're dictating this at work some of the stuff that we're explaining at work is also going to save them in their personal life you know password hygiene that kind of stuff you know not not just signing on to the you know uh, uh, wi-fi at starbucks you know and get compromised you know it, it's bad that it they would happen if it was they were doing our email but it's even bad uh, worse if it happened with their bank account you know get them to realize that it's their personal lives and their business lives that often cross nowadays, especially with, you mentioned the BYOD, um, bring in your own device and stuff. Um, we've also uh, been testing out some MDM solutions on the uh, devices themselves. So like, what the hell is MDM? <laughs> it's like a uh, mobile device management. So, so we get, uh, sorry, there's just too many acronyms. I can't keep up, but thank you. Yeah, no problem. Um, so, like, you know, you, you, somebody brings their own iPhone to work to get into their corporate email. You don't want them to be able to just to sign in through their Android or their iPhone and get the, and get into the email. Well, what happens if they leave? What happens if their device gets stolen? We have to worry whether it's encrypted or not or passcodes or whether we wipe it, how soon we wipe it. Uh, MDM gives us that capability. They immediately call us, say, hey, I just lost my iPhone. Boom, we can wipe it without without them even losing anything, you know, and we hand them a new device and everything goes back on it because of their, you know, they're backed up. So, you know, we don't lose anything. We help them because personally their pictures and everything are backed up. So we want to make sure that it's a seamless operation. So we're here at RSA 2017. Man, it's day four. We're getting towards the end. How has uh, this conference gone for you? What, uh, is there anything that stood out that you really enjoyed this year? Yeah, I mean, the, this is my second time to this conference, and it's it's a networking and um, being able to talk to friends uh, that I find most important, seeing what kind of challenges they have been dealing with for the past year that man, they might not have wanted to put online. Um, as far as the vendors and stuff, I try to keep up on the vendors normally throughout the year. So really, for me, it's not really a vendor party fest, but it's it's more going to some some of the sessions that I might not deal with on a day to day basis because I'm not 100% security. I also do some virtualization and networking and stuff for for the group. So um, being able to spend some cycles and and watch a session that I might not deal with every day um, helps me. Uh, get excited about our industry and, and doing stuff in not just InfoSec, but IT as well. I think about this a lot. Being in the industry and in IT in general as a professional for 25 years, I've seen the availability of resources to learn and to get in, in the industry. It's exponential for what it used to be. And I hear a lot of there's shortage in information security professionals, and we're going to have this deficit on how many jobs and stuff. And I hear a lot of people, how do I get into information security? How do I learn about information security? It's so expensive. I can't pay $2,000 to go to this class or whatnot. But there are some awesome resources. We mentioned YouTube earlier, and it was kind of in jest and kind of like it's real because I, I, I watch and I go on there actively, and I, I retweet the stuff that I find interesting and hoping that other people can look and learn on what what I find interesting as well. I'm not an expert. I never claim to be an expert. But when you go online and you see like the B-sides or the DEFCON videos, for the past 10 years, 
there's so much free that uh, Cyberary IT, they have tons of classes online that are free. Um, even like Udemy and stuff, you know, there are non-paying courses. And I'm not talking about pirating stuff. I'm not talking about stealing books. I'm talking about open resources. You go on Peerlist. They have uh, community-driven, crowdsourced books that they've been able to write. Um, they, they, they just finished their second one. They're not huge, long books. But if you want a basis of information security, that's great. If you're starting out in the industry, there are resources for you. And I, you know... I always tell people, ping me online, ping me on Twitter, do whatever you need to do, whether it's a DM or if it's open talk, and I'll try to point you to the resources as best I can. Uh, speaking of Twitter, how can one go about stalking you on Twitter? My user ID is K-F-A-L-C-O-N-S-P-B. It's just some uh, old name I used to go by online. But my name is Scott Bollinger. If you search for Scott Bollinger, it's out there. And I, I you know, unlike some people, I'll follow people that follow me back because I believe in... You know, I lurked for years on Twitter, and I got a valuable information by what people were, were taking back. But tenfold on when you start communicating with people, you start asking questions, that's when it gets exciting. That's when you start learning so much more. So I always tell people, don't just sit there. You know, it doesn't matter if somebody has 10 followers or 10,000 followers. You ask a question because it's specifically, even in information security, we were just talking about Rob Graham uh, doing a session uh, and uh, he was a great guy to meet. You know, I, I follow him. I've been reading him. Uh, you know, used his products years ago when Black Ice came out. You know, he's a personal firewall guy. You know, it's it was exciting meeting him. But he was so down to earth. He was walking the audience. Uh, Mark uh, Rustovich, uh, I went to his session. You know, CTO of Microsoft, uh, and, and he's walking around shaking hands with people. I, I just thought it was exciting. You know, sometimes I might sound like a fanboy and you know wanting to meet these people, but they're so down to earth. And I just like I think. What can I learn to be like them? And that's the exciting part to me. Yeah. I'd love to be a little bit more like uh, Rob Graham, too. The guy's hilarious slash really, really smart. And, and I also, what I like, I appreciate about Rob in particular, he doesn't have a condescending attitude at all. E even in the presentation, there were people that were asking him questions and he answered it as if they were a colleague of his. And uh, I like that. Scott Bollinger, Senior Systems Engineer at Levitt Group. Thank you for taking time to speak with me, Scott. Thank you for having me. RSA 2017, now joined by Jeff Carr, Principal Consultant at 20K League. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Vince. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. Actually, you are my second guest who's been on my show for a second time, but this time we're in person, which is really awesome. Uh, it's great to meet you face to face, and I really enjoyed the panel discussion today. Tell me a real quick synopsis of what the talk was about and the panelists and um, the essentials of what was covered. So the, the panel was on protecting uh, knowledge assets, and the slide deck primarily was the result of a Poneman research study on how companies are uh, defending... Sorry. Sorry, Poneman Research. Can you, can you can you just really quick? Who, who the hell's Poneman? Uh, so uh, so Larry Poneman has been doing uh, a really interesting work. His his firm is hired to do studies on a variety of questions and a variety of challenges. And then what they do is they uh, organize a series of questions that are presented to typically to, to industry. It might be one for energy companies. It might be one for communications companies. Uh, in this case, uh, it was a broad range of industries 
with the, a questionnaire related to the identification and protection of knowledge assets, uh, as well as defining what knowledge assets you know, are in a company. So the, the results of the study were interesting in that many companies l- did know that uh, their, their assets were uh, being compromised. Uh, however, they were at a loss as to determine uh, exactly how. The full uh, research study is available uh, online at RSAC or at uh, Poneman Research. So you mentioned uh, knowledge assets. For folks who might not have knowledge of what the hell knowledge assets are, can you do a, a brief little uh, primer on that? Uh, so, yes. So the, the first rule uh, in, uh, in defending you know, a network is to understand what's on your network that's going to be valuable uh, to an adversary. And so, obviously, uh, there are laws in place that require a company to uh, defend or protect its personal identifiable information, its payment card information. Uh, If it's a doctor's office, then, of course, their patient data. Uh, So there are certain things that the law requires a company to protect. But then there are knowledge assets. They might be trade secrets. They might be uh, the uh, special sauce that goes into your particular widget. Uh, it, it could be the source code. It could be a bit of research that you have been conducting that nobody knows about, a research that might fundamentally change a particular industry. The company is going to be uh, valuing its assets in, under, a, under a very simple rule. If stolen, will it uh, debilitate or, or uh, ruin uh, the company? It, it seems to probably to an observer like companies already know what's critical, but, but they don't. Uh, it's, surprisingly, uh, it's surprisingly hard for a, a company to figure out uh, what is the most valuable uh, thing on their network uh, that could ruin them if, if it gets out. Uh, the simple rule of thumb is uh, to raise the cost to an attacker uh, and to reduce uh, the value uh, should the attacker succeed in taking an asset. But before you can do that, of course, you have to identify the asset. So the way that uh, the 20K League does it is understanding what competitors and adversaries such as nation states find valuable. Uh, if you happen to know in your neighborhood that burglars are stealing Hondas and you own a Honda, you're informed. Now you understand how valuable your particular car is to the attackers in your neighborhood. So that's what we try to do with our clients. Well, one thing just occurred to me when, when you were talking about uh, protecting uh, knowledge assets was um, JWICs. Um, classified information is kept on separate systems from unclassified information, and they have this JWICs system. Why wouldn't a company just develop their own sort of JWIC system to deal with just the and, and compartmentalize the the really high value assets from just day to day stuff that is not that sensitive? So, um, if you walk into a military installation, you might see two sets of computers on someone's desk. And one of them is for unclassified work, and one of them is for classified work. And so the classified system has uh, no access to the outside, right? You can't send emails from it you, unless, you're, unless it's within um, uh, that, uh, the classified network. And so they, they refer to that as an air gap. And that, that is a valuable 
a defensive tool that companies would be well advised to institute, except it's sort of awkward and clumsy and expensive, uh, and most companies are not going to spend the money. Even companies that do classified research for the government will not necessarily go to the expense of setting up an air gap network. Um, they may de have a dedicated server, but that's about it. So it, it really all comes down to time and, and budget. Sometimes it's something as simple as encryption uh, does the job, but then there are issues with encryption. And uh, is it encryption only at rest or is it encryption in transit? Are you storing your encrypted data in the cloud? And if you are, you know, you're giving up access to whoever the cloud provider is because they still they have the keys to access that data if they if they choose or if they receive a national security letter, for example, uh, then your information is going to be hand, uh, handed over and you may not know about it. So I think my, my biggest uh, bone of contention with the cybersecurity industry is that they focus on um, stopping attacks. Their particular product will stop these types of attacks or those types of attacks or all attacks. It's amazing what some of these companies will attempt to sell. But uh, I think the, the biggest mistake is that you can stop an attack, you can stop a thousand attacks, but you're not going to stop the attacker. So all you have succeeded in doing is educating an attacker about what does not work against your network. I would love to see more attention spent on reinforcing the security paradigm known as assumption of breach. It doesn't matter how much they spend. What only matters is their understanding that with sufficient time, uh, an attacker is going to get in. And so defense, spending money on defending, on identifying and defending your critical assets is the, really the only strategy uh, that makes sense in an assumption of breach uh, security paradigm. Excellent. I just learned a new term, assumption of breach, ALB. I just made an acronym of it. I don't know if it exists yet, but uh, ALB. I'm just going to start talking in acronyms once I'm done here at RSA. And you put on your own security conference called Suits and Spooks. Is that still going on? And when's the next uh, Suits and Spooks? Yeah, nothing like RSA. Mine is a small uh, symposium uh, or workshop. It takes place over two days. We usually have about 120 people. Uh, every year we hold it in Washington, D.C. But uh, we're going to do something new this year, have a specialty event on securing the connected vehicle. And this will be held in Los Angeles. So people that are interested can just keep an eye on the suitsandspooks.com website, and we'll have that information up soon. Your, uh, your firm, 20K League, what's the story behind that name? Right. So I, I'm actually a fan, like many people, of Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I love the, uh, the concept of, uh, of a submarine navigating the monsters that are hiding you know, in the deep, dark ocean, right? I mean, that's really what cyberspace, to me, is like. It's a great metaphor for cyberspace. There are a lot of threats out there that we can't see, that we don't know about. The only ones we know about are the ones that happen to be get caught in our spotlight. Um, and so I uh, devised uh, the 20K League based on that particular metaphor in order to help the s small businesses 
uh, find their way through this uh, threat landscape because for a small business, even one breach could ruin them. And, uh, and because they are small, they don't have much of a budget. Uh, so we're hoping to, to figure out a model that makes sense both from a business point of view and in delivering good value to our customers. Jeff Carr, 20K League. If someone listening uh, wants to find out more information about 20K League, uh, where can they go to find that info? And also, what's your Twitter handle again so people can uh, stalk you over there too? 20kleague.com is the website. Jeffrey Carr, at Jeffrey Carr on Twitter, also at Jeffrey Carr on Medium. And uh, our Suits and Spooks event is, again, suitsandspooks.com. Fantastic. Jeff Carr, 20K League in Suits and Spooks. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Vince. Well, there you have it. RSA 2017 in the books. Again, I'd like to sincerely thank Dave Lewis, Rob Graham, Donald Meyer, Dario Forte, Sebastian Bortnick, Alex Horan, Selena Proctor, Scott Bollinger, and Jeffrey Carr for sharing their time with me this year at RSA. And I would especially like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Vince in the Bay podcast. Check out prior episodes of the podcast at vinceinthebay.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And follow me on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash Vince in the Bay. Until next time, ciao.